Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the London Bureau Chief. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And Mike Turner, Corporate Bonds Editor. Now it's been another super week for frequent issuers in the bond market this week with records broken in a number of bond market segments and we'll be taking a look at some of those in a few minutes to discuss what's behind them Uh, because one of the things that surprised me is that although there are some spectacular deals happening no one seems to think this is the greatest bond market of all time. Yeah, there's been fantastic deals in SSA and in FIG, but there's still this underlying sense that things could sort of go wrong at any moment. Uh, people aren't cont- entirely convinced that this is a, a huge rally in a great market. Yeah, I think we're still seeing uh, slightly slightly higher premiums, perhaps. That's just normal for January. Um, and people describe it as great, but not spectacular. You're right, there is a sort of underlying... I don't know, tone of a lack of confidence, perhaps. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll come back to that in a second, um, because... We'll also be looking into another conundrum uh, that you have raised, Mike and John, this week, which is why, when demand for even the riskiest of new issues seems to be maybe not that high, but high enough, um, investment-grade companies are trying to have less hybrid debt on their books. Yeah, it's essentially about the cost of this debt. Um, Hybrid capital, which is treated as half-equity, Uh, even though it's debt, is uh, obviously expensive for companies to issue because it's subordinated and carries more risk. So, um, you know, with interest rates having gone up a lot, the companies are having to think carefully about, you know, how long they want to continue having this. And of course, don't forget, you can ask GC about anything on the show or off of it. Uh, Now, granted, that covers all of existence. uh, So I should add a disclaimer that our (laughs) answers to topics outside the capital markets may be somewhat limited in use. (laughs) <laughs> I will give them my best attempt, though, to answer. Ah, oh, I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> so if you have a question, intriguing or silly or funny, do email podcast at globalcapital.com. All right. Now, on to this week's issuance. Um, I was particularly interested in um, something that happened in the SSA market this week, which was... There was uh, an abs- It was an absolutely spectacular week for um, issuers in dollars, now, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting about that was because uh, we were at uh, an event on Monday, weren't we, John, where someone told us that um, they weren't expecting the market to work in favour of issuers of dollar paper at all. Yes, and that's partly to do with the basis swap, which uh, is is sort of essentially the, the cost that you pay or part of the cost for swapping proceeds of a bond uh, from one currency to another. And, you know supranationals and agencies even though they're all very similar in many ways and in the ways that they manage their financing they uh they are based in different currencies and therefore you know the the sort of efficiency arguments for for them can vary depending on the issuer what what was very interesting this week as addison gong our ssa editor wrote about it it, very interestingly was a lot of european-based agencies and supranationals went to the dollar market yeah absolutely um it was a surprise because we have been told for quite some time that that hasn't really been uh 
the most efficient way for them to raise money uh, because of the that that basis swap between euros and dollars. And yet, um, more than ten issuers came to the market this week, raising over twenty billion dollars of benchmark funding uh, between them, which meant that the amount of dollar funding done uh, year on year compared to last year was up fifty five percent. And you know, the issuers that drove that were. Uh, for a large part, euro-based, a smaller agencies. This is not the big SSA issuers that we typically expect to see in dollars, some of which, you know, they've already come this year, the European Investment Bank, KFW, for example. Um, and to give you a flavour of just how successful they were, the Council of Europe Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development did their biggest ever dollar deals. Uh, the Council of Europe, um, BNG, the Dutch agency, Communal Bank and from Norway, the CAF, the South American Development Bank, raised their biggest books in the currency altogether. And the kicker is no one quite knows why this was such a booming market this week. I think the thing that seems to be driving it is just the sheer enthusiasm. And that's mm. what's bowling everybody over. The, the sheer size and depth of demand. Issuers getting their biggest deals ever with huge books. That is what's exciting people more than necessarily the exact pricing. For, for a lot of these European-based issuers, the, these dollar deals are not necessarily quite as cheap as they could issue in euros. But it's 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 the sheer enthusiasm of the market that's taking them there. They can get good deals large and with with momentum that drives the pricing in tighter. So, um, you know, it's very attractive at the moment for them. That sort of hits the nail on the head as well as to why there is this underlying um, concern in the market about how strong things are, because uh, enthusiasm is a hard thing to pin down. You know, if it's if there's been a sort of noticeable change from the Fed and that's why everyone's piling in. And then that's why it's happening. But if it's just investors are feeling good this week, then you can't guarantee they're going to feel that way next week if you don't know why. But ultimately, I do think it, it, the enthusiasm is well based, actually. And because even though there, there are sort of little jitters in the market about how fast interest rates are going to come down um, and when that will happen, fundamentally, everybody agrees that they, they have peaked or plateaued and that they will be coming down, that the next move will be down. And that means that there's enormous fear of missing out for investors. This may be their last chance for 10 or 15 years to get such high interest rates. And they're going to make the most of it. And that's why these books are so enormous. It's it's not necessarily that they've got a lot more money to spend than they had. But if you want to get 50 million of a deal, you're going to have to put in, you're competing with all these other investors who want that same deal. And that's leading to enormous inflation of order books and, and just sheer weight of demand. I mean, investors clearly like the spreads that these bonds are coming at because one of the other things we're hearing is that it's it's dragging in, and this will um, add to what you're saying, John, about order books. It's dragging in uh, or attracting, sorry, um, what's known as fast money. Uh, those are what we call trading accounts, so accounts that don't tend to buy and then hold on to the bonds. They just buy them on the expectation they think they're going to tighten or rise in price, and they flip them, sell them, and make a profit. So they're not always the uh, the most desirable um, group of investors in an SSA order book. But because they're coming in to take advantage of these spreads and what they think is the direction of rates, uh, that is uh, forcing everyone else to push up their order size and um, and take on these bonds. So it really is sort of building that sort of momentum and as you say fear of missing out from an issuer's point of view the attraction is clear i suppose that even if the pricing is worse 
a lot of smaller agencies that have a commitment to do dollar deals because you know you can't just do a dollar deal and then never come again it's it's a waste of time and effort because of the amount of work and money you will have spent setting up your program to be able to do dollar funding in the first place um so from their point of view yeah this might not be the cheapest deal they did but they can keep that level of invested diversification that they get from doing a dollar deal and you know if the market's hot right now if we're doing it then then they should absolutely do it and the other weird thing is that there's also fear of missing out on the issuer side, which is a bit paradoxical when you consider that, you know, rates are probably going to fall. But but the conservatism and caution of, of SSA issuers particularly, but also banks, all these very large organisations with huge balance sheets that need to issue an enormous amount of debt, they have this sort of a terror of, of being caught later in the year without having done their funding and of having to you know come to the market at a bad time or something so they so they have this sort of in incredible tendency to front load which has been particularly strong this year and um you know as a result they too are, are desperate to take advantage of all this demand while it's there yeah absolutely i think the thing that issuers learned over the last year or two was that it really was a good idea to do your funding while you could because we had very very disrupted primary markets um, for a number of reasons. You know, geopolitical problems are, you know, always one thing, but just the, the speed of rate rises, the focus on myriad economic data releases and the sort of swings in momentum in favour or against buying bonds that drove really uh, meant that issuers had very tight windows um, and that was all set against the background of central banks receding um, from supporting the bond market, which they will do, especially the ECB, will do again this year when it uh, has a chunk of TLTRO money uh, repaid. That's cheap financing that it provided to banks that will then have to be refinanced in the capital markets. And also when it stops reinvesting from its various uh, the proceeds from its various um, pandemic era bond buying schemes. There's, there's also that human element as well to the capital markets, which um, sometimes gets overlooked, that, uh, that makes the FOMO happen, that if everyone else is coming, you also kind of need to, because even if you don't and you are right and rates start coming down later in the year, um, you have to explain that to your boss all year that you haven't done this deal when everyone else did, and yeah. hopefully it will turn out right for you. And if it doesn't, then you're in all sorts of trouble. And if you're an SSA issuer... You know, ultimately, you know, you're responsible to sort of the taxpayer and, and things like that. So much more than just your boss at a bank or mm. whatever. It's, you know, so it's really quite a lot of pressure, I think, to get these things right. Or if you don't get them right, to at least do what everyone else has done. So you can point to everyone else and say, this is just the market. Yeah, absolutely. Safety in numbers is uh, is always paramount, I think, in uh, or for people in, in financial markets. One, one other thing that happened this week, though, which was sort of particularly fueling dollars, wasn't it, Ralph, was um, the, the widening of swap spreads in dollars. Um, which is, is sort of always creates good opportunities for SSA borrowers. Um, and, and uh, you know, that was sort of particularly why they, they were making hay in the dollar market this week, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. The uh, SSA or many SSA issuers uh, try and price as tightly as they can uh, against the swap curve. Um, they, of course, tend to pay for this issuance in a floating rate. So they're very interested in sort of swap spreads. Uh, but of course, when the 
spread between government bonds and swaps widens, it means that these issuers are now able to offer a better spread uh, to investors optically uh, versus those government um, underlyings, which is how a lot of investors look at the market. It's great for them. And that's led to a lot of the SSA bonds price this year, including, you know, the big deals from the EIB and KFW to Titan in the secondary market, you know, the ones that came earlier, which creates a, another good bit of momentum, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was, that, you know, just looking at this week's issuance, that was pretty amazing. Um I think Addison discovered that eight out of the 11 SSA deals to have been priced this week all tightened by more than three basis points or more. That's that's quite something for the SSA market. No, normally you would expect, I guess you would kind of hope that you would drag in pricing by a couple of basis points during execution, any more than that, and it sort of starts to look like the market doesn't work or maybe you started pricing too wide. Um, and then you know, it's interesting. I think if, if if just one deal had sort of tightened by three or four basis points during the week, you might be able to say, well, they'd sold it too cheaply in the first place. But the fact that eight out of 11 all did that, well, it's not, you know, this is a very mature and sophisticated, but and also quite simple market. So you can't really get the primary pricing wrong across the board like that. So it just shows how much money is, I guess, coming into the asset class and enthusiastically driving all of these deals tighter. It, this is actually something that yeah. um, that has happened in the corporate bond market as well. The exuberance in the corporate bond market hasn't been anywhere near the scale it ha- as it has in SSAs. But um, so far this year, every deal but one has tightened generally into the sort of teens um, in the secondary market. So there's, there's that real um, scrabble for paper in secondary across asset classes. Mike, it's interesting that in the corporate market, the issuers and banks are taking a, a more cautious approach to bringing the deals to market, aren't they? Starting very wide at the moment and then and then cranking it in. Uh, very much so, yes. We're, we're seeing um, spread tightening of 40 basis points has not been unusual uh, this week and last. And uh, generally speaking, if a deal tightens by 40 basis points, everyone who's not on that deal on the banking side rolls their eyes and says they could have done a better job working out where fair value was. And the bank sort of messed it up a bit and fluffed it. But there's been more than a handful of deals have come in by more than 30 basis points. So 35, 40, 38 basis points. And this is indicative of um, not syndicate bankers fluffing it, but uh, the lack of direction in the market and people needing to take that bit more caution to get deals over the line. Um, and And it has by and large worked. This is what I find so fascinating about these markets at the moment is like, we'll take the bank bond market, right? The fig market. It's a bit access all areas. It, you know, all sorts of issues are getting all sorts of trades done. And yet there is still this kind of underlying fear that this could all, all end tomorrow uh, horribly. Um, BPCE, the French bank, for example, um, it did the longest senior bond from a bank since 2012. That's kind of incredible. And there were covered bonds from you know small Italian banks, and there was bank capital being done. Uh, I think by by Greek banks. You know, it really is. Um, there is a, a world of difference between those three types of credit, and yet it all seems to be going well. And yet at the same time, there all seems to be this sort of underlying fear that there are geopolitical risks ahead and i guess this is maybe what's just driving so much issuance now rather yeah. than you know into february and march 
That's it. I think I think it's the fear of what lies ahead that's driving the issuer uh, urgency, and it's it's the it's the fear of sort of losing the higher rates that's driving the investor enthusiasm. Um, and and it's interesting. The fig market is obviously very different from the SSA market, uh, which is sort of always placid and sort of basically safe. Uh, in the in that the fig market has you know caused a lot of worries over the last year or two. I mean, in last March, we had the, what was a sort of mini banking crisis that started in the US and we've had the failure of Credit Suisse. It was pretty bad for banks for a few months. And, you know, there's certainly not a sector that um, is seen as riskless. So so for them, this is very much a sort of recovery story still. I think there's still a sense of, um, you know, joy that, that they're back in the market and that, that things are functioning so well again. Uh, and the contrast with some of the stress of last year. Yeah, and I think what was evident in the certainly in the covered bond sales that I was talking about, the Italian Italian banks. You know, those some of those deals over the last couple of weeks have gone really well, mm. really, really well. Now that's often a product that a bank treasurer will hang around um, to issue until the sort of you know it's called a rainy day product because you should be it's the best rated, it's secured lending, it's safest houses mainly because it's secured by houses um and that's you know that's something like issuers can use to rely on getting funding through the door during tough times these are not tough times and yet all these issuers uh quite unusual issuers are sort of bringing these cover bonds and it's a tra- it's because of that sort of what we were saying earlier in the ssa market that um i called it fast money anyway, it's people like hedge funds who are suddenly think you know have spotted an opportunity given the what they believe to be the future direction of rates and spreads to buy covered bonds and where they trade versus other other bank bond products and that, that's causing enough demand that it must be making some bank treasurers think all right well look it's not a rainy day but i can get the funding done now because maybe the rainy day will be too rainy for covered bonds even or something something along those lines yeah and the, and the fast money element as well will also add to the concern about this rally not really lasting because you know by the nature of fast money yeah it's great when it comes in but it can also you know, the next asset class will, will seem attractive and then they'll move to that and then that's yeah. that done. Yeah. Now, um, one group of issuers that does not seem to have FOMO, um, at least as far as one product is concerned, is investment grade corporate issuers um, and, and their view of hybrid debt because um, they don't want as much of it, do they? Um, first of all, let's uh, recap for our listeners what hybrid debt is, um, where it sits in the capital stack and, and what it means for an issuer. Uh, sure. So hybrid debt is uh, a sort of unique product in that it's some, it's debt that a company can issue that also gets equity treatment from the credit ratings agencies. Um, and usually this is split 50-50. So it's seen as 50% debt, 50% equity. Um, and what this means in pragmatic terms is that companies can load up on this stuff and it won't affect their credit metrics. So you won't get S&P telling you you've got too much debt for how much uh, revenue you have. So we're going to have to you know knock your ratings down. Um, the, the, the trade-off for being able to do that, though, is that the debt sits very low in the capital structure. So the only thing below it is equity. So if a company goes, goes bankrupt, then it's the hybrid guys who are going to lose out. Um, this means that it's quite expensive for companies to issue. For, for years, that hasn't really been a problem because um, the central banks have been buying everything. So even hybrid debt has been very cheap for, for issuers to, to put out there. Uh, but now obviously things have changed rates have gone up and uh hybrid debt has become more expensive as a result so the other quirk is that if you issue as a company hybrid debt the 
the rating agencies expect you to keep it there. You can't, it's not just a sort of product you can turn on and off at will, issue some, and then when you don't need it anymore, sort of get rid of it. Um, one of the reasons that the rating agencies give equity treatment to it is that they regard it as permanent. And, you know, permanent subordination and the, the ability to skip paying the interest, those are the three main characteristics of hybrid debt that, that earn it equity treatment. And so once you've issued, say, two or three billion euros of, of this debt, you kind of stuck with it. And um, if you if if it becomes a lot more expensive, um, you have to either live with that or or think very carefully about what to do. As, as one of my more colourful contacts put it this week, um, hybrid debt is like crack cocaine. Once you've done it, you can't get off it. <laughs> and, and so this is the situation in which a lot of European companies find themselves at the moment, isn't it? They're, they're thinking about um, whether to refinance it with, with a new hybrid at a much higher rate or to do something else, Mike. So coming out of quantitative easing and into quantitative tightening, where these hybrids are so much more expensive... Um, so the way that the way that these hybrids work is that you have a call date they'll have a perpetual maturity or a very very long maturity way longer than senior bonds 60 years 80 years something like that and um but they'll have an earlier call date that will come in for example five years or three years or you know a much shorter more manageable amount and when it gets to that call date that's when it's generally expected that a company will issue another hybrid refinance the old one and uh, then you know start again effectively but since the um, quantitative tightening phase of, of central banks that happens sort of post-covid um, companies are getting to these call dates and seeing that it's just way more expensive to call deals and to just let them slip or to try and do other things like tender them and you know buy bonds back from the market so the rating agencies have the, the ultimate say on, on whether companies uh, keep their hybrid capital at the same level or, or can reduce it. S&P in particular is influential because its criteria are very clear. It will allow a company to reduce their hybrids by up to 10% um, in any 12 month period or by 25% over 10 years um, without asking any questions. But if they go beyond that, they have to effectively get S&P's permission um, because otherwise what S&P can do is take away the equity credit from all the company's hybrids just like that and that would severely affect uh the company's credit metrics would probably lead to a rating downgrade um and you know no company wants that so um you know in cases when the company has strengthened its credit metrics um it can sometimes get rid of hybrids and a, a good example last year was danone uh, the French foods company, which had a 1.25 billion euro hybrid, which was coming up for its call date last year. It had issued this at a, I think, one and three quarter percent coupon in 2017. And hybrids last year were being issued at between five and nine percent. So so it was going to be a huge increase. And it did actually uh, redeem the bond and not issue a new one. So So that's the route that some companies are able to take. But for many, it's uh, trickier and, uh, you know, well, they don't want to like um, one of the issues this week, Mike. Um, yeah. So EMBW, the German company, uh, sold a 500 million euro no grow 60 year non call six green hybrid uh, this week. And that really tightened from 5.875 percent yield at initial price thoughts 
all the way down to 5.25%. Um, and what's interesting there is that it looks to have paid a negative new issue premium of 12.5 basis points, depending who you ask. And it had a massive book as well that peaked at above 4 billion and ended at 3.6 billion. So I think what this shows is the dilemma for companies that, you know, ENBW will be paid much more on this hybrid than, than the one it's replacing. However, the demand is great. So if you do decide you want to keep your hybrids, as EMBW does, it has 2.5 billion euros of them, which it wants to maintain. Um, it, it, it's a great time to come to market because you know the deal will go well. From a corporate treasurer's point of view, yes, hybrid debt is relatively expensive now compared to previous times even if you know even if investor demand is rampant and you can you can crush the uh, crush the yield uh, during the pricing process you still end up at a point higher than you would have ended up a couple of years ago um from a corporate treasurer's point of view though have they not come to be sort of reliant on this product and what's what's the alternative um to it do and do they even need it uh because it's not as if they can necessarily sell more equity or they might not want to sell more equity um and i guess rates are coming down so i suppose they will have the view that their their credit position will be less um how can i put it stressed perhaps assuming there's there's no no recession um what what are the sort of choices that corporate treasurers have well essentially they are weighing up long-term and short-term in imperatives in this whole conversation and, you know, a corporate treasurer does have to think, you know, where can I save money all the time? That's their job. They have to fund the organisation as cheaply as possible. But at the same time, hybrid capital is doing a very strategic job for the company. It is they are getting equity benefit from it. It is an alternative to issuing equity. It's obviously much cheaper for the company to use hybrid debt than equity. And that's why they do it. So um, they're going to have to think about the long term. What are their CapEx plans? What are their M&A plans? If it's likely at all in the next few years that they're going to be doing anything expensive, such as, you know, major investment or an acquisition, then it's likely that it's going to be useful to them to have some capital on the balance sheet. And it's not a good idea for, for many of them to sort of get rid of it, you know, by, by reducing their hybrids. Um, this is not really a product that you should be sort of quickly dialing up and down. Um, but 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 this is the sort of thought process that that all the companies are going through at the moment. So you don't think this is a secular sort of a secular decline in um, hybrid capital issuance by companies? No, if anything, I think this is just a reflection of the the lack of investment and M and A and things like that that we've had um, the last couple of years. And actually, people are saying that um, the the energy transition. Um, you know, basically the need to invest in a lot of new renewable infrastructure and, you know, new grids to cope with the electrification of the economy. This is going to be one of the major drivers of hybrid issuance. Already utilities and energy companies are the biggest sectors in the market. Um, they're the sort of organisations that have, you know, long term investments that, you know, have, have turned to hybrid capital uh, traditionally. Um, and, you know, if anything, they're likely to need more of it over time because they are facing large um, calls on their balance sheets with, with the need to finance this new infrastructure. Both the issuers so far this year, Iberdrola, the Spanish power company and EMBW, are 
uh, energy, you know, electricity providers, and they both uh, actually made their hybrids green instruments, which which shows that there is a strong overlap between uh, the the needs of the energy transition and hybrid issuance at the moment. Or, or a keen interest in uh, financing cost management, um, a cynic might suggest. Of course, that, uh, that <laughs> as well. And and you probably get an extra benefit uh, from using your green uh, funding capacity on a hybrid deal where the cost is obviously higher. 